My name is Blair. Welcome to Waypoint this morning. Uh, if you're new here, uh, you've come on an interesting weekend. It's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, actually, we're doing something that we've never done before. We're, uh, we're linking two weekends together. Uh, and when I say linked, I mean this. If you draw any conclusions I say today before you hear next week, you've taken my words out of context. They're that linked. We've never done anything like this before, but the topic that we're gonna approach today is so um, broad, and I have to cover so much ground that it's gonna require us to do that. And the reason I wanna even cover this is because um, I'm hoping to give you an accurate take on what the scriptures have to say about this. And uh, I, w- I would say uh, one of the things that helps us get that accurate stuff is some background things that happened that we don't know about. Around 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed and the Jews were dispersed, uh, the people who would have known all that background stuff that the writers would have just assumed you understood, it started being lost to Christians as they scattered and were about. In the last 20 years, there's been so much work to recover the context that things were said in so you know what Jesus said, why he said it, the context that it was said in. And so um, we're going to spend some time doing that this morning. In fact, we're going to spend our whole morning doing that. Um, At my time at Waypoint, uh, there have been several moments where uh, we have picked up controversial topics. And they're controversial because there's been one traditional way that the church has spoken about that sort of thing. And I had become convinced as I looked at those that there had to be a better understanding based on what the scripture said of that topic. And despite the fact that that was my motivation to find a way to help people really understand what the text says a lot clearer, um, and, and I, don't, I don't run people off who disagree with me, I don't do that sort of thing, but despite my motivations and that desire, every time we've had a controversial topic like this, uh, people have left Waypoint. And uh, I, I'm not really thrilled about doing this. Um, I, if I were being honest with you, I'd tell you I'm a little nervous right now. I'm not normally nervous at all. And, and here's, here's the thing that I'm, I'm trying to do. I've, I've accepted that when God decides to lay something on my heart and spirit like a weight, that I've got to do something about that um, despite whatever lumps I may take. Uh, because there have been moments in my life where I have not done that, and that has consequences too. And what I, what I really believe about my life, and I believe it for yours as well, is that God gave us the scriptures to help us navigate life. And if you have an improper understanding of this, or you're just relying on a traditional understanding of something, instead of the accurate picture that's in the text, it could bring harm to your life. And it can bring harm to other people's lives as well. So um, this morning, we're going to talk about divorce and remarriage. And I know as soon as I say that, that the experiences in the room are really different. There are people here who've gone through that experience who have never fully recovered. Maybe you were a child or you were one of the participants in that and you're still you're still feeling the weight of that. There are others who've gone through divorce and they are in one of the healthiest relationships they've ever been in at this point and it was one of the 
best things that they would tell you ever happened to them. And you have a, a gamut of people that you know, friends, family who've gone through this sort of stuff. And so this is a really personal subject. My goal is not to find a way to pick a scab on people who are already sore and hurting. I'm just going to say it again. My goal is to try to find a way to give you an accurate picture of the way God views this so we can navigate as we move forward through life by doing our best. Um, I've read a lot to get to this point. Uh, This has been months in the making for me. One of the resources that I read that I I want you to know about because I'm going to refer to it a lot is a book by David Instone Brewer. He basically took and digested every verse that's about divorce in the scripture. He found where they were linked, what they were about. He then studied how that was actually practiced by the Jewish culture. Then he went and studied the cultures that were outside of Israel at the time of ancient Israel. And he compared their practices to find out what was common amongst them and what was uncommon amongst them. And he found things that were in the text that Israel did differently than everybody else did, and he also found a lot of similarities. So we're going to use some of that background stuff to help us um, when we finally get to Jesus' words. We're going to start with Jesus' words this morning, uh, but I'll tell you right now, I think that's the mistake that most people make with this topic. They start here, they read this, they think it's written to us in our time, And they just go with it. So I want want to do what other people have done, and we'll go from there. Um, It says, in Matthew 19, 9, I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, I, I, uh, I grew up in the church hearing this taught. And, um, and when I was young, it became pretty apparent to me that divorced people weren't very welcome at church. At, at least in the early 80s, when I could remember, I, I, what I watched was really uncomfortable. As I, as I got older and I found myself helping um, in church leadership areas, I discovered that a lot of divorced people almost had a second-class citizenship within God's kingdom, There were certain things they could do, certain things they couldn't do, and a lot of it had to do with people's understanding of what's written right here. And the the traditional um, teaching that I've heard on this has just been pretty straight up. If, If you divorce for any reason but the one that's mentioned here, uh, generally that's adultery, then your remarriage is invalid in God's eyes. And shouldn't have happened. And so, um, so there were people that I knew that had gone through um, a very difficult divorce and were now being treated uh, pretty terribly. And I wondered, is that, is that what really Jesus is getting at? And, and here's what I would submit to you. I don't believe that you can understand these words until you understand all the things that come before these words. And I'm not simply talking about going back to verse 3 and seeing what, how the conversation starts. I'm saying let's go way back. So that's where I want to take you. 
I want to take you back to Exodus chapter 21. And in Exodus chapter 21, this is not the first time divorce is mentioned. I would argue that divorce was first mentioned when Abraham had Hagar leave, who was a slave wife, and God seemed to support that for whatever reason. Well, this is, this is about to be a very similar situation that's about to be discussed. This is about a slave girl, and I can, I can show you that. It's in Exodus 21.7. It says, if a man sells his daughter as a servant, you could put the word slave in there. Now, if, if this were a guy, the scripture is going to go on to point this out, that guy would be freed seven years from now. So if you sold your son into slavery to pay off a debt or something like that, seven years down the road, he is free. He's not kept as a slave. But this girl doesn't have that privilege because it's assumed that whoever has her as a slave is going to sleep with her, and so she is like a wife to him. And because of that, she, she cannot get out of this. So we're, we're about to explain what's going to happen here. I'm going to use some slides to do this, okay? I want to set this up for you because um, they're going to describe a situation here. And here it is. This guy gets a slave wife. Now, it's, it's not necessarily a wife, but she's treated as that. She has, she has no rights. She cannot leave. She'll never be anything but his slave. And then the scripture is going to talk about how this guy... He marries a free wife, and they're pretty happy together, and things are okay, but the slave girl's still in the picture. And, and because of that, this is very much like Sarah and Abraham, Sarah starts not liking the slave girl. So in the next slide, oh, this one's got to go. And when that happens, there's some friction. And in verse 10, it comes out like this. It says, if he marries another woman, if he marries another free woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. So no matter how upset he is with this, let's go to the next slide, no matter how upset he is with his slave wife, he is not allowed to withhold food, clothing, and marital rights. It's also referred to as oil in the scriptures in a lot of historical documents. It's referred to those three things. Now, if he does, there's a penalty, and that gets mentioned in verse 11. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. Um, what's happening here is fascinating. What, what we're seeing unfold is a set of rights for a slave person that existed nowhere in the culture of the time. When you look at all the cultures around Israel, when you looked at Israel, nobody did this. A, a slaves had no rights whatsoever, and all of a sudden, this slave was given some rights that were dramatic for, for anybody, like they would have been significant. And there was a penalty. And these three things would allow her to leave without, she would not have to give him any money. She would not, there was no penalty. She didn't have to buy her freedom. If he violated these three things, she could leave. Now, I understand um, that when we talk about slavery, uh, we're, we're talking about a different time, a different culture. And there's a sense of uncomfortableness with us, and it should be. Uh, slavery's wrong. It's not acceptable. 
and it's uh, something in this past history that was being dealt with in different ways. Um, But here's the thing. When you looked at Israel and the surrounding cultures, there were tons of similarities in how they practiced relationships. This was an outlier. This one was weird. It was a departure from anything that you could possibly see. Nobody else treated a slave girl this way. And it's not because she had a contract. Contracts were written by wealthy people. So when you went to go get married, if you had a lot of money, you put some things in writing. But normal people, and definitely this slave girl, had no contract. There was nothing in writing. And yet, here's the thing. All of these relationships were protected by these three things. These three measurements, food, clothing, um, marital rights. And um, it would have been about food. Uh, So it would have been like uh, your physical needs, clothing, your temporal needs, and marital rights was about you caring for the relationship. In fact, we can get really specific about what it means because we actually have marital documents that were drawn up between wealthy people. And in some of those documents, they would actually detail how much food the guy had to give the girl every week. You're responsible to give her X number of bushels a week. And if you don't do that, you're breaking your contract. She was supposed to um, prepare the food. She was supposed to feed the kids. She was supposed to clean up, do dishes. All of those kind of things were detailed out when it came to meeting those physical needs. Clothing, I, I, I feel terrible. Um, guys, I apologize right now, sorry. But they had to give the woman a clothing allowance and it was sizable, right? I apologize, I'm just giving you the facts, right? It was a significant amount that you would have to give on a yearly basis so that she could clothe herself. And before, ladies, you start cheering or anything, you were responsible to make the clothes, right? You're like, oh. Yeah, you, you had to make those, you had to keep them in good repair, you had to do all of that. All of that was written into the contract. And then the last one was marital rights. This this was a complicated one. It was about caring for the relationship, but it had some significant pieces to it. Um, This included things like abuse, neglect, abandonment, withholding sex, um, public humiliation, or massive displays of disrespect in the relationship. If you weren't caring for the relationship in those ways... That would be a problem. And all of these things were spelled out in a contract. Now, here's what's funny. You didn't need a contract for these to be protections. Do you know why they use this system, by the way, these protections? All of their marriages were arranged marriages. You did not know this person. You were not marrying for love. You were marrying based on believing that this person that you were marrying was going to keep their obligations to you. And because you expected that and they expected that from you, these contracts were in place for the wealthy, but they were protections that everybody had. Didn't matter who you were, the culture as a whole, and every culture, by the way, not just Israel had this, every culture at the time had these kind of measurements where they said, 
if you violate this, that's socially unacceptable for us, and there are remedies, there are punishments that come with you violating your obligations. Now, um, it should be, should be noted that the system that we just read in Exodus 21, that was the system in place for everyone. If there was a wrong that had been violated on any of those three things, then you could bring that forward and there would be a penalty that would be involved in this. All three of these categories um, had that sort of thing. Now, uh, as I said, every culture, every culture had these operating at the time. And, uh, and you might say, well, why doesn't the Torah kind of spell it out more clearly? Why doesn't it say that for normal marriages? And I, and I would say, because it was a standard practice by so many people, it wasn't a change, they didn't feel like they needed to record it. But there was a record of that change being extended to a neglected group, and they were being given more rights than they ever had before. They were given more rights than anybody had in the surrounding cultures around them. And let me just ask you this. If this was the rights of a slave girl, would the rights of a free woman be more, less, or greater than a slave girl? Would the rights of a man be more, less, or greater than a slave girl? I think um, they would have had different rules and different values, but I'm, I'm just telling you right now, we know based on practice, this actually brought the slave girl up to equality with everybody else, but the free person would not have had less rights in this. Now, here's how this happened. If you, um, if you violated one of these things, you could be taken to court. Uh, think, think to yourself, the city elders who sat in the gates. You would go to the city elders of the gates and you would present your case. And you would say, hey, there's been a big violation. There's been a big violation of this. So let me give you an example, like abandonment. The, the guy gets up and he's out of there. And he, and he, like, he leaves her in the dust, right? And, and when he does it, when he gets out of town, she has no food, she has no clothing. More than likely, she doesn't have a place to live anymore either, and the culture had decided that when he gets up and jets like that, that was unacceptable and that could go to court. There's another, um, by the way, these are all, these, there are court documents, recorded divorce documents where that was happening quite a bit to women. The guy was just taken off and she was left stuck. She was married, couldn't get out of that relationship, but had no way to have food, clothing, or any other kinds of protections. Uh, another example that were in court records, um, uh, there was a lady who took and fed her husband uh, some food that was unclean and then told him afterwards that it was unclean. Kind of like, hey, how's that pork? And he's like, What? which would have forced him to go get ritually clean. It would have been very publicly embarrassing. And, and this, this was part of the stuff. And they would say, that massive kind of disrespect where you're humiliating the other person is grounds for you to bring this to court. And the court would take this 
And here's, here's what they would do. They would first confront this. They would say, hey, um, this kind of big violation is unacceptable. You can't do it. Uh, by the way, I'll just mention this. Many of these violations in the cultures around Israel had time frames attached to them. So it would be something like this. If you don't feed your wife for three years, she can divorce you. Will she survive for three years without food? Don't know, but that's the time limit. It is worth noting that in Exodus 21, there's no time limit. This, that would have been another radical change, and if it would have been a change that slaves had, it would have been a change that free women would have had as well. So there weren't like, hey, we're going to starve you for three years, and then you have an opportunity. You, you, you have an opportunity right now. Now, again, this is, this is how this would have worked out, and this is really important for you to understand. The penalties were all financial, even for withholding sex. If you withheld sex from the relationship and that became an issue that you would take somebody to court over, what you would do is you would confront that behavior and try to get it to change. That's the first step. And the the court would levy a fine. If you were actually doing that, they would levy a fine against you in the first round. And they would convince you to stop doing what you're doing because it doesn't meet the obligations that you had in your relationship. If you went and you continued to do what you were doing, if you decided that you didn't really care and you were going to be unrepentant and you kept doing what you were doing, you refused to feed her, you, you continued to withhold sex, you continued to do this sort of thing, the second visit to the court, they would levy a second fine and they would issue a divorce decree and the decree said this, she is now free to marry anyone she wants. That's the, the whole point of the divorce certificate was remarriage. It was understood, it was expected. That, um, that was the whole reason that you were trying to get some freedom is so that you could move on to the next relationship. This was standard practice throughout all of Israel. It was standard practice in the cultures around Israel. Now, If the woman was the one who violated the marriage agreement, part of her dowry would be taken as part of the fine and it would be harder for her to remarry because she had less to offer. And, but if she was the one who had been hurt, if she the one who had been harmed, she would actually receive the fine. And because there was still a stigma with divorce, despite that, She would have a chance to get remarried because she would be a little more wealthy and people would be willing to take the risk because the fine would be given to her and that would give her a chance to remarry. So the whole system was set up to operate this way and in Exodus 21, you're being exposed to how the system works. Here's the three protections. Don't violate these. If you violate these, there's a penalty and it was a financial penalty. That's how the system works, okay? Now the question is, is there anywhere else in the scripture that helps us understand that maybe this is how things worked? Well, in Hosea, the book of Hosea, um, God is using a prophet to explain how divorce, um, how God is going to divorce Israel as an illustration. And so he uses divorce as an illustration, and we see that in verse 
2 of chapter 2, he uses divorce language. It's a very common divorce language. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. You would use that sort of declaration in a divorce setting. It's very, um, a lot of uh, Islamic countries have the standard where you say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Three times, it's over. That, that's a legal divorce. Well, this would have been a kind of pronouncement that was like that. Okay, so uh, God's setting this up, and he's responding to Israel with a, this picture saying this way. And in verse 8, it gets kind of interesting. It says, she, Israel, has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain and the new wine and oil. Oil's another way for saying marital rights. Who lavished on her silver and gold. And in verse 9, he goes on. Therefore, I'll take away my grain when it ripens, my new wine when it's ready. I'll take back my wool and my linen. Now it's really interesting. God is using a divorce picture to illustrate a point. And he uses the three ideas that were very common and standard. He's speaking their language because this would have been a common measurement for why a relationship would have come to an end. God was saying, I was faithful to you. I supplied the stuff that you needed in this relationship. I honored you, and you were unfaithful to me. And because of that, now I'm going to withdraw these things that come with a relationship. And so you see um, in Hosea this idea, this picture of these standards being applied, and God seems to refer to them as if they're pretty normal because they were. They were a standard normal measurement that people used. You couldn't violate your obligations to each other in a big way without penalties. And God's using that illustration. So, so when you um, work through that, you could start by saying there's three. There's three reasons um, that God would say, hey, divorce for these three things, these big violations of the relationship... Um, are acceptable. And you might be thinking to yourself, man, there seems to be one that's missing that's big. Well, yeah, there is. And, um, and we're going to go to that one right now. It's a, a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 24.1. But this verse, this verse adds um, one of the addition, additional reasons why divorce was legal in Israel, but it's also the place where all of the messes start. This verse was taken and twisted and turned in ways that was never intended that resulted in much, much harm. So I want to I read it. It says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her out of the house. Now this goes on. This is completing a thought and the thought is basically the gist is this. If you've divorced this woman and she's gone and married somebody else and then that person dies, you can't remarry her. And the reason they were creating these boundaries is because finances were a huge part of this divorce and remarriage system. And if you rejected this person and find them and then you wanted them to get money from their husband and then get them back and then maybe do it again, they just weren't gonna allow it. But in the process of that, what gets detailed is another process that was in place for why divorce was happening in the Israelite culture. 
It was about adultery. And by the way, this was a major change. You could now divorce your spouse for adultery. And up to this point, you ended their lives. But but when I say they, I don't really mean that. I mean you ended her life. Because what they thought based on what this section of um, scripture teaches is that because a man could divorce and this was written to a man, that meant a man could have multiple wives. So he really couldn't um, violate the adultery clause. He could sleep with as many people as he wanted to. The only person who would be guilty of that was the woman. And so the woman was enforced with these laws by the loss of life quite often. And the guy kind of skirted by it. This is why, um, by the way, this section of scripture that you see here is why Joseph was going to put Mary away quietly when he found out. This section of scripture actually allowed for that. Instead of it having to be um, public and known, there was this process that you could work through, okay? Um, In this culture, adultery was skewed as a violation that the woman did. And the guy kind of got a free pass on this. And in fact, over time, in the Israelite culture, they used this section of scripture, um, Deuteronomy 24.1, to expand this to say it's not just adultery, it's suspected adultery. And here's how this would work. If you were a lady and you were in your home with another lady and there was another guy present... They had to assume that even though somebody else was there with the two of you, that the the one woman who was married was trying to set up a liaison with this guy, and that would be suspected adultery. And in Jesus' time, this is how far it had come, in Jesus' time, you were expected to divorce her for suspected adultery. You might not have wanted to. But you would have been pressured to do so. Later on in Israelite culture, you would be forced to. You would not have a choice. And it was close to that right now. There was a lot of internal pressure for you to divorce that person for both. Adultery or suspected adultery. This, is, um, this kind of divorce was meant to be a little easier Um, In that, it wasn't meant to be public. You would just go to a rabbi, you would explain the situation, they would fill out a certificate of divorce and they would say, listen, um, for this to work, you have to be wronged, you have to provide that person with a certificate of divorce, and you have to kick them out of your house. And if you do that, you're good. And that's why the scripture said about Joseph, he was gonna do it quietly. He was about to use this process Mary's obviously pregnant. I didn't do it. I've been wronged. I'm going to give her a certificate of divorce. I'm going to put her away quietly. So her life's not ended, but this is over. But something uh, besides the suspected adultery, something else odd happened with this section of Scripture. There uh, There was a bunch of people who read this and said, We all know what indecent means. Why did they put the word something or some in the scripture? I'm going to put up a very literal translation in the NASB. 
uh, is on the side screen. This is very literally translated. Um, is that the one? No, put the next one up. Yeah, put the next one up. There it is. This is the more literal translation. He says, because if he found some indecency in her, and the, um, the rabbis wrestled with this and said, some indecency is a useless word. It shouldn't be there. We all know what indecency is. We don't need some as a descriptor. And so a rabbi by the name of Hillel, who lived before Jesus' time, actually died when Jesus was um, a young child, came up with an explanation for this quandary. And Hillel said that what they meant, what they intended, was that there would be um, found some reason or any indecency. It was an and-or thing. So go ahead and put that up. So it was some or any indecent reason was how you were supposed to understand this because the some wasn't required. It just turned out that some reason was any reason. That's how they interpreted this. That this scripture gave them any reason whatsoever to divorce their spouse. And... And Hillel said, this is how easy it is. Here's what you need. Any matter, was considered any matter divorce. You just needed to find any matter that you were displeased about. You give her a certificate of divorce and you kick her out of the house. And that's all you need. So you understand, um, the conservative rabbis of the time thought this was wrong. And they taught against it. And there was much controversy around this, except, <laughs> except, the conservative rabbis at the day would still honor this divorce. If their followers decided they wanted divorce and went to a Hillel rabbi and that rabbi filled out the certificate and that person issued it against his wife and sent him out of the house, the conservative rabbi would say, that's wrong, but we'll still honor it and we'll remarry you. So they were making a bluster about what was right and wrong, but they didn't follow through and they didn't care. And this had become the majority way for divorce to happen during Jesus' time. You just had to find any reason that displeased you. And by the way, there were some things that were recorded. Here's the kind of stuff that were being used. She's older now. I want a newer version. I'm displeased with her divorce. She's not as pretty as she once was, divorce. She burnt my toast. She's out of here. This any matter divorce was being used to manipulate women. It was basically this. You do what I say, when I say, how I say it. You jump when I say jump. If not, I'll any matter divorce you. And there were no penalties. He didn't have to pay a penalty to get rid of her. In fact, this system was so heinous because it started protecting bad actors. If the guy was abusing his wife, beating her, and she wanted to take him to court for cause, he would simply any matter divorce her and get rid of her. He wouldn't have to, he would avoid a fine, he would avoid changing his behavior, he would avoid everything, he just had to get rid of her. And this is the kind of stuff 
that was happening in the culture at the time. And although the conservatives argued against it, they honored it. In fact, um, they would remarry into it. They would remarry others into it. They wouldn't hesitate a second with the remarriage part of this. All of this, by the way, now we have five reasons for divorce, right? You have five reasons for divorce. You have the food, you have clothing, you have um, marital rights, you have adultery, and now you have any matter divorce, and any matter divorce ruled the day. It was, it was all that was being used because it was simple, it was easy, and I could protect myself from anything that this woman might do to gain a financial penalty against me even if I'm doing wrong. All of this, all of this is happening in the background of this text when we come to Jesus' words in Matthew 19. And when we come to Jesus' words in Matthew 19 next week, hopefully we'll start to be able to make sense about everything that's said there, okay? Again, don't draw conclusions about where it's gonna go. Jesus is about to blow everybody's mind in what he says in Matthew 19. And I think there's gonna be some really good stuff that's valuable there for us. But we need this part of it before we can even understand anything that's there. Okay, so why don't, um, why don't you pray with me real quick? They, they said I had to check and make sure I didn't talk. Oh, I talked way too long. Sorry, it's, it's difficult, um, but let me pray with you and then uh, we'll head out for the day. Um, God, I know we picked up a difficult subject, but I think you care about it because it's pretty practical in people's lives. People are making decisions on these things. And I just ask that as we uh, wade through this, that your spirit would be active, confirming what's true and right and making us uncomfortable with stuff that isn't. And I ask that you would reset the standard for us and that we would listen for you on this. God, I ask that you would give people the courage not to draw any conclusions, to wait, uh, to see where you take this in this conversation. You knew what was happening in the culture when you decided to address this stuff. And what you say is bold, it's daring, it's actually hope-filled. So I ask as we anticipate that, that we would come next week ready to hear how you want to address a difficult thing that was happening with those people and stuff that's difficult that's happening with us. So give us eyes to see, hearts that are open. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for coming, and we'll see you next week. I hope you'll come back for this. Well, good morning. Welcome to Waypoint. My name is Blair. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you were here last week, uh, you know what's coming your way. Um, if you weren't, I, I want to apologize. Maybe this is, um, you missed last week, and, or maybe this is your first week here at Waypoint. You're about to see some stuff that we've never done at Waypoint before. Uh, one of those things is that you're about to see a second part to a two-part series, which where you kind of needed to hear the first part first in order for this one to make sense. We've never done that before because we know people come and go and that's just kind of the way it is. But um, the topic is so big, it was so complex 
that I, I didn't see any other option. And so uh, we'll eventually put this out online, and um, I hope that you'll go and listen to that if you've only heard one of these sections, and you'll listen to both of them together because you need the complete picture. I'm, I'm going to be using notes. I don't normally do that. But again, the topic is so complex, and every little piece matters that I cannot rely on my brain um, to make sure that you get it all. So I'm, I'm going to use some help to make sure that we're covering what we need to cover. Um, we're talking about divorce and remarriage. These, these are big subjects that have caused a lot of difficulty in the church over the years. And we're trying to get an accurate understanding from the text on God's heart on this. And I'll, I'll just give you a quick recap. I can't stay long on this. We have so much ground to cover. But last week, we looked at the Torah and we found four places, four different reasons for divorce in the Torah. Um, the four reasons are food, clothing, marital rights, which would have been oil. It included a lot of things. There's a lot of things in that, uh, from abuse to abandonment to withholding sex to um, all kinds of stuff fit in that marital rights. Um, and those were found in Exodus. And then we took you to a section in Deuteronomy 24 where the fourth one was added, adultery. And these four reasons uh, were found and were used by the Israelites. We know this from historical context. They, um, they were divorcing over these issues. Significant problems with these. Not small spats. Significant problems with these. Over time, though, during Jesus' time, there was a rabbi by the name of Hillel who found a fifth reason for divorce. He found it in the Deuteronomy 24 um, section where it talked about adultery, and he concluded that a, a fifth reason for divorce was any reason. Any reason that you were displeased with her, you could divorce her. This was only for guys, sorry ladies, you were not allowed to use the fifth reason for divorce. And so um, they were using all kinds, any and every reason, to end up divorcing each other. Now, uh, the conservatives, the conservative rabbis of Jesus' time said these any matter divorces are wrong. We're opposed to them. And at the same time they were opposed to them, they would turn around and remarry anybody who had gone through an any matter divorce. If their followers wanted an any matter divorce and went and used the other system to get a divorce, they'd still say, oh, that's fine, that's okay. We don't agree with it. We're gonna bellow against it. But they accepted it in every way, shape, and form. They also, the conservatives and Hillel's group, had agreed that Deuteronomy 24, that section on adultery, that you were required to divorce your wife. And in fact, um, if you wanted to be considered righteous in Jesus' time, you divorce somebody for adultery or suspected adultery. Again, just the ladies. This is just the ladies. The guys couldn't violate this rule. They didn't believe that they could commit adultery for reasons that we'll discuss here. Um, so all of that was kind of agreed upon. And all of that is happening in the background before we get to the section of Scripture that people use when they talk about divorce. And, and to not know all of that stuff before you get here is risky. 
Okay, so um, I just gave you a quick overview. Now, uh, let's jump into Jesus' words, uh, and we're going to find he's going to enter into a discussion in Matthew chapter 19. And in verse 3, it says this, some Pharisees came to him to test him. They, are, they already have a position. They're not looking for his help to try to figure this out. They simply want him to choose a side. And then when he chooses a side, are you going to be with Hillel? Are you going to be with Shemaiah? Are you going to be with the liberal? Are you going to be with the conservative? Who are you going to side with? Then the fireworks are going to start. They have no idea that Jesus is going to deliver fireworks for everyone. They ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Of the five reasons for divorce in their culture, which one are they talking about right now? They're talking about any matter divorce. It had become the, it had become the predominant way that you divorced. The other, the other divorce that you did was hard. You had to go through a process. And women could start that, process, that, that kind of divorce, but not any matter. And it had all kind of become a de facto any matter divorce culture. And so they've kind of raised this any matter divorce. And, and here's, here's the thing. We're going to read a whole bunch of stuff here. And Jesus is going to start tackling stuff that doesn't seem like it's related to the initial question. Um, what Jesus is doing is he's starting to attack all kinds of beliefs that were developed out of Deuteronomy 24.1. There were a whole series of things that were in there. Um, but we have to be careful when we read that to understand that's what's being addressed. He's addressing any matter divorce and all of the craziness that came with their understanding out of that verse. And so Jesus starts by saying in verse 4, he says, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning... The creator made them male and female, and they knew that this was Genesis 1.27. Everybody knew that. And then he says, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And they knew this was Genesis 2.24. They all knew this because this verse, these two verses, were often paired with a third verse from Genesis that was very active in the culture. It's recorded in a lot of historical documents. Maybe um, a way for you to understand this is some of the commentaries of their day paired three verses together. And these are the three verses. And so everybody's assuming they know what Jesus is talking about because the first two verses come and they're expecting the third verse. But he changes it up. Instead, he says this. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. That idea of separate would have tied back to the question they were asked about divorce. That was what divorce was. You would separate from this other person. And so he was saying, listen, I, I don't want anybody to separate. And, um, and, and Jesus just did two things here. The first one he did by naming those first two verses in Genesis. Um, what had started happening was in uh, this culture, they had started to use those two verses plus the third one found in Genesis as a context for saying 
Monogamy is the only kind of relationship that God supports. It's monogamy. And, and they, would have, they would have been familiar with this argument because it was pretty active. And so they would have recognized what Jesus was doing. But what they didn't recognize was um, his, his statement about not separating. That, that would have been a little odd for them. Now, um, if we take... Uh, by the way, Jesus made one change to Genesis 2.24. I just want to show it to you real quick. Uh, we'll put up the two versions of Genesis, okay? Uh, the one on uh, your left is uh, from Genesis 2.24, and the one on the right is from Matthew, where Jesus quotes it, and he changes the word. Instead of they, he says two. This was also a very common thing in Jesus' day amongst the rabbis who were trying to make the point that monogamy was God's goal. God's goal. Okay? So, he, so he's in line with all of that. And people would have recognized this is common teaching. These are common changes. This is normal stuff. He's taking a position that says, hey, polygamy, this, this desire that you have to have multiple wives, which was kind of garnered out of uh, Deuteronomy 24.1, is not okay. And they kind of concluded that it was out of Deuteronomy 24.1 that you were allowed to have multiple wives because if you had to divorce for adultery, you were expected to get remarried, so you, you had the ability to have many wives. Early on in Israel's history, they used that as the reason to have multiple wives. They say, look, the text says we can. If we have to be divorced, it can't just be one person. But it's not just that Jesus said, I want monogamy. He said, I don't want you to separate. And that, um, that would have been a head nod to this idea that what God had in mind is that you would get married for a lifetime. Now, uh, both groups of people would have been shocked by this. The, the liberal Hillel side and the conservative Shemaiah side didn't buy this at all. They both accepted that because you were required to divorce over adultery, that there was no way that God intended you to be with one person for a lifetime. So that wasn't even on the table. So when Jesus said this, this would have set off warning lights with all of these people. They would have been, are you kidding? Why are you saying this? But he, he tells them why he said this. He says, because God joined you. You have to be careful when you read that. I think sometimes the way we think about joining, the way they were thinking about joining are two different things. Here, think of it this way. Think of God blessed this. He designed the union for this. He put a process in place for oneness. And if you go to Malachi 2, I'm gonna put this up on the screen, Malachi 2.24, it said that God acts as a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You made the vow, you bind yourself but God has a process in joining, and one of those things is he acts as a witness to what you've done, and he holds you accountable for that. And so all of this would have been on the table. And, and for their culture at the time, monogamy was becoming more accepted. Uh, probably only the wealthy had multiple wives at this time in history, but it was still practiced somewhat, although more and more rabbis 
were doing what Jesus did. They were using those three verses. They were changing Genesis 2.24 to say this is about one guy, one girl. And so that was on the plate. But when Jesus says, I want monogamy and lifelong, there were some implications. By the way, he didn't answer their question. He starts dealing with the junk that's been piled on from the misinterpretation of Deuteronomy 24.1. And here's some of the implications that he's dealing with right away. Number one, if it really is monogamy and lifelong, then the woman would also have the right to divorce over adultery. And that right never would have been there before. It never existed up until this point. But if, you, if, but if what God designed, if what he had in mind was two people for a lifetime, and the guy violates that, he should face a penalty too. So, so that's there. Um, no multiple wives. Like, it's pretty clear that Jesus just took up position with the, the rest of the rabbis who were saying, it's, it's not polygamy, that's not acceptable, there's no multiple wives in this scenario, this is it. And then the last one, is he's starting to create equal footing in the relationship. Like, um, guys, you're just as responsible in the relationship as the woman is. And under the current system, the way they were doing it, the woman bore most of the responsibility. And if she didn't do what he said when he said how he said, he would simply any matter divorce her. If that's off the table, if, if what God had in mind was monogamous and lifelong, then there was more of an equal footing that would have been brought into that relationship. If you don't think this is shocking for them, they know exactly what's going on. They ask for immediate feedback. Verse seven, they asked, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? If there's any doubt in your mind that they're talking about Deuteronomy 24.1, you see it reiterated here once again. This is the process that's outlined in that verse. And the way that these guys have looked at this is they've said, hey, clearly we are required, we've been commanded to divorce our wife over adultery. By the way, they believe the same thing for a suspected adultery. And they, they understood this to be a command. So if you look... At Deuteronomy 24, 1, I'll just give you a second to read through it. Do you see a command there? Do you see some sort of demand that God says, I expect you to do this? I'm going to force your hands on this. It's made up. There was no command. It was the way they had interpreted it. And Jesus is about to correct it. It's why he says what he says next in verse eight. He says, Moses permitted you or allowed you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. It was not this way from the beginning. Now, for Jesus to use the word permitted, could have been translated aloud right there, had significant consequences in that culture. Because, um, because of the requirement they had put on people to divorce. Um, later in Jewish culture, around 70 AD when the temple falls, they will actually force divorce over adultery and expected adultery or suspected adultery. But in this culture, 
um, you were still required to. And this mostly disadvantaged the woman because she was always the one being blamed for this sort of thing and it would be against her. But it's not always the case. Um, They have found in historical records that there were some men who found themselves in a situation where their wife was being blamed for having suspected adultery and they did not want to divorce them, but they felt compelled to if they wanted to remain righteous in the eyes of the community. Well, what Jesus says here, as soon as he says the word permitted or allowed, it means that you could actually forgive that person and you could stay in the relationship. And Jesus is starting to say, listen, here's the, here's the pattern. I want a monogamous, lifelong, forgiving relationship. If you can do this, this would be great. This, this is what I'm shooting for. And so this would have been, um, this would have been a big deal. Uh, I'll, I'll give you just a side note here. There was one situation where they did force divorce, even in Jesus' day. Uh, It's terrible. Uh, But if you were married for 10 years and you hadn't been able to have kids, they would force you to divorce each other even if you didn't want to. Believing that God's command to be fruitful and multiply meant that you had to have kids. And if you hadn't have kids, you would be forced to have a divorce. This this is going to go away from that too. And Jesus is saying, no, that that is not what I had in mind. I had lifelong monogamous forgiving relationships. Now, it's important to note that Jesus did not close the door on divorce here. He could have. He could have said what Moses did in allowing that was wrong. But he didn't say that. He said, yeah, there was a reason for divorce. It was a hard heart. It could have been translated stubborn which is very scary because if we've just added stubbornness as another reason for divorce, I'm in a lot of trouble, right? I'm going down. Now, but, but that's not what's happening. He's not adding another reason for divorce here. What he's doing, there's only two good explanations. And honestly, the one is so ridiculous, it's not even plausible. So it's possible that the nation of Israel had decided they wanted divorce, And they kept whining and saying, we want divorce, we want divorce, we want divorce. And God said, okay, I guess you want it. You're so stubborn, I'll let you do it. Does that sound like God? No. There's only only one historical reason that this happened. It is why this stuff came up. Um, Men were divorcing, not divorcing. They were abandoning their wives back in Torah times not giving them a divorce, which left them with the inability to provide food, clothing, housing for themselves, and they were being left destitute and desperate with no other means to protect themselves and to care for themselves. And Jesus said, because you had hard hearts, because you were willing to treat each other this way, I allowed for divorce. Specifically, uh, the idea, if you're dealing with Deuteronomy 2.24, would have been this. If, if this person is committing adultery and is unrepentant and refuses to stop, if they're doing that with a hard heart, that is not something that you have to put up with. That's, that's kind of what Jesus is getting at, this idea of the hard heart. Now, here's the thing. When I was growing up, 
um, what I understood by the way the church culture operated was that the person who filed for divorce had a hard heart. They were the ones who were in the wrong. And, and never did you look at the actions or activity of the other person who was harming them. And so you would just say, I'm sorry, um, the stigma for divorce is on you. And so this person who was in a desperate situation now found themselves facing another desperate situation because if they go through a divorce, the community stigmatizes them, which is kind of odd because it's very clear that the process that God set up was to protect people from the hard-hearted. And what had happened in Jesus' time is any matter of divorce had now started to protect the hard-hearted. There was never a penalty faced by a guy. If he was wronging the woman and she would take him to court like the process was there to do, he would just any matter divorce her and get rid of her. He never had to face any consequences, any penalty. And so his hard heart was always protected. And that is not why God allowed this to even happen in the first place. And I think sometimes this is how we've practiced it in our culture. It's the person who files and you, and you never look at what caused that to happen in the first place. So Jesus leaves the door open for this. Calls it a hard heart, stubborn heart that's a problem. And then in verse 9, he finally makes a comment. I'm going to break this uh, verse up into two sections on the screen. He says this, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now these, this, this is the verse that has um, uh, people have landed on for no divorce ever, any, any kind of thing. But Jesus was not talking about that. In the first part of this verse, what he just did was he made all of the conservative rabbis who took the position that any matter divorce was wrong, he just got them cheering because that's the phrasing that they used in their rebuff against any matter divorce. You, you can't do this except for this one reason. Now, they would say adultery, and uh, you can find a very big change that Jesus just put here. He said, no, no, no. I'm going back to the standard in Deuteronomy 24. It was any sexual immorality. It was not just adultery. Um, there's all kinds of other things that you can do that dishonor each other. And so that's in the bag. But the second part of the verse Jesus puts that in there and he says, and marries another woman commits adultery. This would have been shocking for the Shemites. The Shamites are about to go, yes, we win. And then Jesus says the second part and they're like, whoa. Because they would rail against any matter divorce and then they would treat it like it was no big deal on the backside. So all they, all they were doing was a bunch of bluster, but they didn't actually stand against it in any meaningful way whatsoever. It was just something to argue about. And they wanted to be right about it, but in practice, they winked at it. Now here's the thing. Neither side would have been happy with what Jesus was saying right here. 
Um, Jesus is saying, I want you to stop these no-fault, any-matter divorces. They're terrible, and they're harming people, and they're leading to big consequences that you can't fully understand. Now, just, just so you um, get this, this had become so ingrained in the culture that Jesus' disciples are going to pull him off to the side in verse 10, and they're going to say this. <laughs> If this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. If what you're talking about is monogamous, lifelong, forgiving relationships where we have equal footing with each other, this is simply a bad idea. Right? And Jesus says something shocking about marriage. It's the only thing, it's the only thing in this section of scripture that's not tied to Deuteronomy 24.1. In verse 11, he says, not everyone can accept this word. And he goes on to talk about those who might not marry. And this would have been shocking for everybody because they all believed that you had, you had to get married. You, you had to do this sort of thing. And so um, you find uh, Jesus tackling one thing outside of Deuteronomy 2.24 was the idea that you were required to get married Everything else was um, kind of packed in there. Now, here's the thing. There's some things missing here. Some things that Jesus, could, he commented on all kinds of things. He took the chance to comment on lifelong monogamy. Took the chance to comment on forgiving each other, not being forced or required to divorce before he makes his statement that I think any matter, no fault divorce is out of bounds. He had plenty of opportunity to address some other things. But what you don't see is Jesus addressing food, clothing, and the marital rights. In fact, he expands the adultery just a little bit. He says, no, no, it's not just adultery, it's any sexual morality. If you're gonna toy around with this stuff, you're harming that relationship, and we're not going to go for it. So the question is why? Why didn't Jesus address those other three reasons when he had a chance and he was tackling all kinds of misunderstandings about marriage? And I would tell you this. There was wide acceptance on the process that was in place for those other three huge violations. You stopped feeding your wife you stop giving her um, temporal needs, withheld clothing or housing, if you didn't fulfill your marital rights, there was a process that was in place. And you would go to the court and you would confront them, and if they wouldn't change, they would be fined, or they would be fined in the first confrontation. Then the court would give them a time to change because that was the whole point of it. We want you to change your way, stop doing this. But if they had an unrepentant, hard heart, it would end up back in court. They would be fined again, and only then a certificate of divorce would be issued. And the certificate read, the whole purpose of it was now you can marry anyone else that you want. Remarriage was never off the table. That process was widespread. It was accepted by everybody. It just wasn't being used very much because any matter divorce was. Now, now um, in case you wonder how widespread this is, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is talking to Romans. 
And he's going to talk to them about a situation that happens between a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse. And he says, but if the unbeliever leaves, abandons them, takes off, and is done with this relationship, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such, such circumstances. They're not bound anymore. The binding is the thing that you do. You make that vow with the other person, and then God does this joining thing. Well, if somebody breaks that and leaves, abandons the relationship, Paul said you're not bound by that. This, this was widely accepted. This was understood, and it was in place to make sure that people weren't taken advantage of. Now, the, um, the question is, okay, despite seeing this, we have some problems. I mean, this is, this is where it starts to get dicey just a little bit, right? Because if you were to ask me, I would tell you that our, our culture is as close to any matter of divorce as it gets. You'll, you'll hear this reason used. We have irreconcilable differences, which is scary because I've been married 29, almost 29 years, and we definitely have irreconcilable differences, right? She's really different than I am. She thinks different. She's always thought that way. And we don't agree on a lot of things. And from what we can tell, the next 29 years are going to be the same thing. And, and what we've discovered is our ability to work through those difficulties to forgive each other, to stop worrying as much about the stuff that we care about has made us better, better people and better together. Everybody has irreconcilable differences, except those are being tapped into just a little bit for divorce in our culture. And we're nervous that if we create any wiggle room, if we go any, anywhere outside of the bounds of what the church had traditionally said is no divorce except for adultery, in any case whatsoever, that we're being permissive. And I've, and I've listened um, to pastors talk about how God hates divorce, and it's not, like, it's not like they can't find that in the text. I wanna show it to you. It's in Malachi 2, I think 16, there it is. It says, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And so you have Jesus' statement in Matthew 9. You have this. And you have these other things that have happened in the text and Torah that were allowable. So what do we do? Well, I think one of the best things we could do is read the rest of this verse. Because there's an and. Look at what it says. And him who covers his garment with wrong. God hates divorce. And... Him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Yeah. God hates divorce. But he hates some other things too. And uh, what are we going to say to the person I, by the way, when I was growing up in church, I actually, I watched one of these conversations. I, I thought it was messed up then, but I didn't know any other understanding of this text except for the traditional one. But what do you say to a woman who's being abused by a guy? I've watched that woman be told, you have to stay in this relationship because God hates divorce. Well, he hates abuse too. 
What do you say to that person who's married to somebody who basically looks at them and says, I'm gonna go sleep around. I don't want divorced, but I'm just gonna play the field and you're gonna have to live with it. What do you say to the person where um, somebody's gambling and drinking away all the money They can't pay their bills. They can't put food on the table. They can't have a house. And is is our response, you said I do, you're stuck with it. it, live with it for the rest of your life. See, the question is, here's the question, and it's, it's it's so beautifully done with that verse that we just looked at, is what do you do when two things that God hates collide, Right? What do you, let's put up that little um, gif, and we're going to show them what it looks like when two things collide. Oh, yeah. It's messy and painful, right? They had to hit faces. Well, what do you do when two things that God hates collide? What we've done in our culture is we've said and kind of gone along um, with a with the trappings of Jesus' culture, we've said, if you're being wronged by this other person, our understanding of the scripture is that you just have to live with it. You just, have, you just have to take it. And instead of affording any protection for a person who is abusing, um, violating their commitments, storing up wrongs in their garment is the way the scriptures talk about it. You're now making them a victim twice. And in Jesus' time, the hard heart was protected. And I think in some cases in our culture, the way we have talked about it has protected the hard heart. Because whether you um, want to accept this or not, God laid out a protection by means of divorce for people who would have a hard heart towards their spouse and harm them and be unrepentant in the process, uncaring about what they've done or how they've done it. And when that happens, God says, listen, um, when you've read Matthew 19 and and you've understood that to be about everything, you've not understood what I was dealing with. There was a protection in place. There was a system in place that actually brought protection to the one being harmed by an unrepentant heart. And when we've read that, we found ourselves kind of doing the same thing in our culture. No, you stay in that situation and you take whatever's happening to you and deal with it. Now here's the truth. The problem with divorce has always been a hard heart. That's the, that's the issue. And in some cases, the hard heart is possessed by the person who simply wants to file for the divorce. They're looking for a way out. They've stopped um, loving the other person. The person annoys them for whatever reason. They're not working hard at the relationship. And you, and you know this is you, if you're sitting here right now, trying to figure out a way to fit the reasons that you want divorce into the categories that we just covered. Like if, if, if you're trying to bend it into that, you, you know something's going on, right? 
I just want this, I just want this, I just want this. Well, there's a hard heart for there. The, the problem is, there's a whole other bunch of times where the problem with the hard heart with divorce is that somebody in that relationship is treating the other person so disrespectfully, so wrong, so out of bounds, and they're unwilling to change. And they're going to put somebody through a whole lot of misery. And God says, listen, the problem is a hard heart. And in that case, it's not okay to keep exposing this person to this unrepentant heart who will take advantage of them. And they should be freed. They should be protected. They should be watched over by a system that's in place to guard against the hard heart. Now, here's what's um, kind of fascinating. Jesus never comments on what the people were supposed to do who had already gone through a divorce. He says it's adultery, but you have to understand that in Jesus' day, adultery wasn't just a moral thing, it was a legal thing. <laughs> people owed fines. Like there would, have, there would have been all kinds of a mess and this would have been going on for about 100 years by the time Jesus comments on this. So there'd been any matter divorce going on for a long time. So this was a huge mess and not once does Jesus comment on what they're supposed to do. Not once does he say, oh, you should go back and marry this person. Look, if, if you've got divorced from somebody and you can reconcile with them, that's fantastic. But many times, that's not a possibility. And the question is, how do you read this idea of don't remarry? You know, there were at times the church read this so tightly and narrowly that if your spouse died, you were not allowed to remarry because you were not separated by adultery. So you could never remarry. You want to know why the widow problem blew up and they were having to take care of them? In the early church, that was one of the reasons why. Um, Jesus was not trying to make blanket statements about remarriage here. He was looking at the Shamites and saying, listen, you rail against this, but yet you remarry like it's no big deal. And instead, you should beware that when somebody any matter divorces you, you could be the next any matter divorce. You should have your eyes open. It's not surprising. That's why people who go into a second and third marriage end up with higher divorce rates because the any matter thing kind of kicks in. I haven't solved what got me here in the first place and I'll just any matter divorce you next time too. And so there were warnings about this, but throughout Historical Christianity, remarriage was anticipated, expected. In Jewish culture, it was anticipated and respected. If you had been harmed and you were released from that harmful relationship, there was nothing wrong with you going and remarrying. <sighs> Marriage is supposed to bring out the best in you. Sometimes um, it brings out the worst. And when that happens, it's an opportunity for you to get in there and do some heart work. 
that changes who you are because if you want God's standard of a monogamous, lifelong relationship that's forgiving, then you've got to do the hard work. You've got to do the hard work to pursue that. See, the last, the last thing that I want to do is open up the door for divorce. I think there's already enough of that. But, but here's what I would say. Honor God by honoring your spouse. Honor God by honoring your spouse. The scriptures do not give you a free ticket to treat them with disrespect just because they're locked into a relationship with you. And God will come to their protection. And if that protection includes removing them from your relationship, he'll allow it and permit it because of a hard heart. So don't allow it to get there. When you said I do, you entered into one of the hardest things that you'll ever do in life. Do the hard work. Honor God and honor your spouse. And these hard-hearted situations will be behind you. Let me pray with you. God, I come before you knowing um, that this has not been a traditional view that the church has held. Uh, But I I believe um, what the text is presenting is a good God who refuses to allow people to be continuously abused with no hope, to be mistreated without any remedy. Yes, you do hate divorce but you hate other things too and sometimes those things collide and it's messy when that happens and God, I ask that we would hold on to you in the process, that we would do everything in our power to fix those things and to make it right but when it's just impossible to do that, they've abandoned, they've gone, they've shut themselves off, it's over. God, I ask that you would give people the grace to move on, to find a way to step into a future where you're going to protect them. God, I ask you to help us to be wise about this. Our culture is really comfortable with any matter divorce. I ask that you would make us a people that aren't, that we would fight as hard as we could, as long as we could but that we would also not be judgmental for those people who have faced hard-hearted situations. God, make us a people who love, who understand your heart, and who are willing to protect those who are taken advantage of. In Jesus' name, amen.